hi, this is Glenn Rawson. One of the most powerful ways to share history and heritage is by the telling of stories. We began sharing inspiring stories nearly 30 years ago. Each of those stories is true and was intended to inspire and strengthen faith. Over the years, those stories have reached millions around the world. This podcast is for you to listen, learn, and enjoy. Does God care about human freedom, whether it be in America or anywhere else? Does he care about human freedom? Can a man be saved in the kingdom of God while in bondage on earth? Now, these are important questions. By the way of an answer, I want to tell you of an unusual Christmas story. It was December 1776. The tattered remnants of George Washington's Continental Army were camped in the open on the banks of the Delaware River, where once they had been some 20,000 in number, bold and strong, now Washington's army is less than 6,000. Where once they had soundly defeated the British at Lexington and Concord, now they were a decimated band of rabble running for their lives across the frozen New Jersey landscape with the British in hot and humiliating pursuit. And now, here they were, huddled around the fires on the Delaware River to keep from freezing. Their rations were reduced to starvation subsistence, even some of them living on tree bark. Their inadequate clothing was nothing more than filthy rags hanging on emaciated bodies. They were dejected and defeated, as beaten psychologically as they had been so physically. And yet, for all of us moderns now, on this ragtag group of men hung all the hopes of the American Revolution. This is the army of the revolution. They are all that stand between America and avowed British tyranny. Consider, if you will, General Washington. At this time, he was about as burdened a man as ever lived. Many were calling for his resignation, even within the Continental Congress. Officers under his own command were openly murmuring against him and positioning to replace him. Desertions within the ranks of his army were rampant and daily. And here he stands on the banks of the Delaware with an army too weak to fight, feeling the weight and carrying the blame of the American plight. Meanwhile, across the river in Trenton, Safe and warm are the Hessian mercenaries left by General Howe to hold Washington's pitiful army at bay. Now, he could have finished them off at any time, but it was widely known at the time that on December 31st, the enlistments of Washington's army would expire. His men would simply go home. The British saw no need to attack and finish Washington and his army off. 
cold, starvation, desertion, that would finish the fight for them. All the British and the Germans needed to do was sit and watch while the American Revolution collapsed upon itself and the dream, that arrogant dream of American freedom would die with it. It was a monumental historical moment. So much hinged on the decisions made now. At one of the lowest points, Thomas Paine came into camp, talking and mingling with the soldiers. He was deeply moved by their plight and sat down and, according to some, penned a pamphlet called The American Crisis, written, it is said, on the head of a drum. These are some of those words he wrote at that critical time. Quote, These are the times that try men's souls. The summer soldier and the sunshine patriot will, in this crisis, shrink from the service of his country. But he that stands it now deserves the love and thanks of man and woman. Tyranny, like hell, is not easily conquered. Yet we have this consolation with us, that the harder the conflict, the more glorious the triumph. What we obtain too cheap we esteem too lightly. Tis dearness only that gives everything its value. Heaven knows how to put a proper price upon its goods, and it would be strange indeed if so celestial an article as freedom should not be highly rated. End of quote. Those words once published ran like a storm across America. To the credit of the man and the power of heaven that moved him, George Washington was inspired by those words and by the powers of heaven. He was inspired. He did not lie down in defeat as so many would. He rose from his knees, gathered his ragged and beaten army, and in the face of a terrible howling blizzard, crossed the Delaware on Christmas night, 1776. Several thousand men, cannon, and horses were ferried across the ice-choked black waters of the Delaware. From there, Washington marched his men nine miles to Trenton, leaving, it is said, bloody footprints in the snow as they went. In weather, literally so cold that men froze to death when they sat down. At dawn, Washington did the impossible with the seemingly incapable. He attacked Trenton and the unsuspecting Hessians and captured the men and the city and lost not a single man in the battle. Inspired by that timely victory, the faltering fight for American freedom regained its momentum. Men re-enlisted, volunteers came, allies joined, and the battle for American freedom went on to victory. General Washington, over the next few days, captured Princeton and sufficient supplies to carry his men through the winter 
safely quartered at Morristown. But, oh, think about that moment when it would have been so easy to give up the fight and quit. Thank God for that man. Thank God for all those men. Little did they know how much their sacrifice would change the course of human history and change our lives now. With all my soul, I tell you, the cause of freedom and liberty is the cause of Christ. His birth signaled the opening of the prison doors here and hereafter. No man, no woman, can be saved in bondage, political, or freedom. The shackles must come off. We must be free in heart, mind, and in person. We must choose God and be agents unto ourselves, or we cannot, we cannot be saved. Praise be to God for an oft-forgotten Christmas gift given by humble men and women at a terrible cost. Thanks be to God for what we have, and once again and for the last time this season, Merry Christmas. A few days ago, I was standing in my kitchen looking to the south through the sliding glass door. Right outside, I noticed a bird just a few feet away on the edge of the grass, very close to the house. He caught my attention because, first of all, he was a big, beautiful bird, and second, he was acting really, really weird. The tinted glass door prevented him from seeing me, but I could see him clearly. So I moved closer, and I stood, watching him. His bill was about two inches long, pointed, and he kept poking it into the ground almost all the way to his eyes. He would thrust the bill in, pull it out, and do it again and again and again. He did it so fast, I wondered to myself, what in the world is this bird doing? Every so often, he would shove his bill in the ground and give his head a twist and a flip, and dirt and debris would go flying. I was so captured watching him. The entire time was probably several minutes. I stood there watching him while he hopped around my lawn exhibiting this strange behavior. I thought to myself, is he feeding? But if he is, how in the world could he know what's down two inches into that frozen ground. On and on that bird went, poking holes in my lawn like a feathered aerator. Finally, he flew off, and I stood there, musing at his curious behavior. Well, you know me, I'm a man of simple mind. His antics kept bothering me. Why? Finally, I got on the computer, and I looked him up. Turns out that that bird was a northern flicker, a species of woodpecker. I learned that he is one of the few 
woodpeckers that feeds on the ground as well as in the trees. In fact, it is said up to 45% of the flicker's diet can come from ants and their larvae, which he digs out of the ground with his bill. Moreover, the article said that the flicker's tongue can project up to two inches off the end of his bill in the capture of prey. And he has often been observed pecking at the ground the way other woodpeckers peck at trees. <laughs> that was it. My friend the flicker was feeding. It was lunchtime right outside my kitchen. Right where he was pecking the ground is where huge colonies of ants lived last summer. Now, <laughs> I know you think that I've beat my head against a wall one too many times, but a point came to me. When I first saw that bird, he made absolutely no sense at all. His erratic actions seemed to lack all judgment and reason. He just looked, well, crazy. But it turned out I was the one who was misjudging. He knew exactly what he was doing and was doing that which nature had programmed to do for his winter survival and sustenance. Smart bird. Now the point. We are like that flicker. As Christians, we do things every day of our lives that make no sense to the people of the world that are watching us. In fact, we're weird. We're often criticized, persecuted, because what we think, what we feel, and what we do makes no sense whatsoever to the world who does not share our values. We try to live moral lives in an immoral world. We believe in kindness and civility in the midst of a society of vicious incivility. We reverence our bodies as heavenly gifts while those around us to see it, see it as a mere toy to be decorated and played with. And on and on we could go. Make no mistake about it. We make no more sense to the people of this world than that crazy flicker made to me. They think we're crazy. Well, you're not. They just don't see yet what drives you. But mark my words. They will, and those who have mocked, scorned, and persecuted will rue the day they ever did. September 24th, 1834, Kirtland, Ohio. A council of 15 men presided over by Joseph Smith met to consider the doctrine of Christ for the government of the Church of Latter-day Saints. End of quote. A scriptures publication committee was appointed that consisted of the first presidency. This was, as it were, no light task for these men. It was concluded that the doctrines of Christ, as revealed in this new in this dispensation, be assembled in a new volume. And the revelations which have been given to the church up to that date 
Or in other words, all the revelations that have been given through the prophet Joseph Smith since the beginning should be published. That was the decision. Less than one year later, August 17, 1834, Oliver Cowdery arose with the newly published book in hand and called for a vote from the quorums of the church assembled. In the course of that sustaining, certain leaders spoke and bore their witness of the new book. Among them was John Smith, the uncle of the prophet Joseph. The minutes record that President John Smith arose and testified his joy that we have at length received the long-wished-for document to govern the church in righteousness and bring the elders to see eye to eye, end of quote. He then testified that the revelations came from God. President Smith then called for the vote of his quorum that they, quote, would receive the book as the rule of their faith and practice and put themselves under the guidance of the same, end of quote. The vote was unanimous, and so it went through every quorum down to the deacons themselves until finally a vote was called from the General Assembly of the Saints, and the vote carried, and the new book, newly canonized, was received as Scripture. And thus, my dear friends, the doctrine and covenants of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints was born. The first 70 pages in that first Doctrine and Covenants, the text was the Lectures on Faith, which I'll talk more about later, which contained, as it was reasoned at the time, the doctrines of the Church. Following that in the volume were the revelations received by Joseph Smith that contained the covenants or commandments of the saints, of God to the saints of the last days. In short, the book was the doctrine, lectures on faith, and covenants or commandments, meaning the revelations. It was and is that volume meant to govern the Church of Christ and bring us all to see eye to eye with the Almighty. In September 1830, 20-year-old Chapman Duncan left his home in Barnett, New Hampshire, bound for South America. He was suffering from what was called at the time consumption, which oftentimes was tuberculosis, and he determined that he would go south, way south, for his health. The route that Chapman chose to go to get there was to travel to Cincinnati, Ohio, and from there journey south through the river systems all the way to New Orleans. While journeying on the Ohio Canal, he became so ill that he was confined to his bed. Somewhere near Louisville, Kentucky, he was lying awake in his bed when he records the following experience. Quote, it appeared as though a man spoke 
yet I heard no audible voice. It was a quiet, peaceable, yet sure impression. In fact, I knew that the Lord or an angel spoke to me. This is the message he bore to me, still quoting. Thou shalt prosecute thy journey no farther south than the mouth of the Ohio River. If you do, you shall die. Chapman continued, I looked to see the personage. I saw none. I began to meditate upon what I had heard and the feeling that pervaded my person. And while thinking, I cannot say whether it was five minutes or more, Spirit again spake and said further, quote, If thou wilt go to the place of gathering of my people, thou shalt live. End of quote. Chapman said the force of the message rested so heavily upon me that I dared not go farther south and turned my course for St. Louis, Missouri. Well, Chapman became discouraged when he could see no way that he was going to get to St. Louis, Missouri. He called on the Lord in prayer. Right after that, he saw two men standing on the wharf. He felt impressed that he should go talk to them turned out. One of those men was Elder Philo Dibble, a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Chapman later recalled, quote, My soul was filled with joy to think the Lord would make plain the way for me to do His commandments and place means within my reach as He did right there. End of quote. Chapman Duncan set out for Independence, Missouri in November 1830, driving a wagon for Philo Dibble. He spoke of the warm welcome he received when he arrived in Independence, Jackson County. After listening to the doctrine of Christ, the teachings of the elders, and getting somewhat acquainted with the new-made friends, for he said, they took me in, Chapman said, I joined the church. I think the last of December, baptized by Elder Titus Billings on the Sabbath day, confirmed by Bishop Edward Partridge and Council. In a short time, he continues, the Holy Ghost fell upon me, and I did speak with new tongues and prophesy, and I thanked the name of my Redeemer. And from that point forward, Chapman Duncan cast his lots with the saints. He lived to be 88 years old and passed away in Caneville, Wayne County, Utah. Thank you for listening. Many of the stories you heard today have been published and are archived at glenrossonstories.com. If you would like more information, you can communicate with us there. We will be back again with another podcast next week.